we all know what it means to run the other way. And if you know and have walked with the Lord for any amount of time, uh, you know that the Lord can be pretty creative when it comes to bringing us back to where we ought to be. So, if we are to look at this uh, in the whole, like I said, it's four chapters. So, the first chapter shows that Jonah flees from God. The second chapter shows that he prays to God. The third chapter shows that he preaches to the people of Nineveh. And the fourth chapter, we find Jonah pouting. Chapter one, he's running. Two, he's praying. Three, he's speaking. And fourth chapter, he is learning a tough lesson. So here's the story. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, go at once to Nivea, the great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, most of you I know are Bible scholars, but if you have not studied the Hebrew, you would find that this passage in the first and second verse of Jonah chapter 1 actually reads in the Hebrew, get up and go to Nineveh. I just wanted you to know so you can go and you'll know how to read some Hebrew. Get up and go. It's amazing how just one little sentence can change your life, though, isn't it? You can be driving down the highway, get on the phone, get a call, and it can change your life forever. If it's good news, it'll change your life one way. If it's bad news, it can change your life another way. But either way, your life can be turned upside down by just one phone call. And that's kind of what happened to Jonah when God spoke the three little words, go to Nineveh. Now notice the assignment, go to Nineveh and cry out or preach against it. So this is not God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for you kind of message. And it's certainly not, hey, this is your best life now kind of message. This was really bad news from Almighty God. Go to Nineveh and preach against it. Their evil was like a foul stench to the Lord and the time had come for judgment. When God said Nineveh was wicked, he really wasn't kidding. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the most powerful empire in the world of that day. And the Assyrians had a reputation for cruelty that is pretty hard for us to fathom. Their speciality was brutality of a gross and disgusting kind. Their armies, when they captured a city or country, they did unspeakable atrocities. They did things like skinning people alive. They ripped out tongues, they decapitated, they mutilated, they would make pyramids out of human heads. They would pierce the chin of their enemies with a rope and force the prisoners to live in kennels like dogs. The ancient records from Assyria 
boasted of this kind of cruelty. For them, it was viewed as a badge of courage and power. So let's set the stage. The Assyrians had no use for the Jews, and the Jews hated the Assyrians. They hated them for their bloodthirsty cruelty. They hated them for their idolatry. And most of all, they hated them for their arrogance. For a Jewish man to be told by God to go preach to Nineveh was repugnant. As far as Jonah was concerned, Nineveh could go back to the pit from which it came. In other words, when Jonah heard from the Lord that there was going to be judgment, he was like, go ahead, Lord, push the button. Why would I care what happened to Nineveh? You know, it makes me wonder, what or who qualifies as Nineveh today? I believe Nineveh is whatever pulls you out of your comfort zone. I think Nineveh is the people who've hurt you deeply. And God says, go and give them my message. Nineveh is the place God calls where you don't want to go. Nineveh is danger. Nineveh is discomfort. Nineveh is whatever you hate that God loves deeply. What do you say when God says, go to Nineveh? You need to think about that. Because sooner or later, he's going to say that to you. Anyway, when God said, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach against it, guess what happens? Well, it certainly wasn't, and Jonah went straight to Nineveh. That's not what happened. Verse 3 says, but Jonah set out to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare, went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now here it helps to have a little bit of geography. Nineveh was about 500 miles north and east of where Jonah was already. It was a major city on the bank of the Tigris River. Tarshish was almost 2,000 miles west going towards Spain. So we've got probably about a 2,500-mile gap between God's call and Jonah's disobedience. Jonah's actions, Jonah's disobedience brought punishment not only upon himself, but to others around him. After he boarded the ship to Tarsus, there was a huge storm. And during the storm, the men working on the ship called to their gods and to their idols to deliver them from the punishment that was being given. And the workers found Jonah down under the ship sleeping. They awakened him and asked him to pray to God, to his God, for protection. 
The men even cast lots to see who had brought this punishment upon them, even though Jonah knew that it was his fault at the time. When the lot fell upon Jonah, he confessed that he was of Hebrew and he was running away from God. And he asked the men to throw him overboard, but the men refused. Instead, they tried even harder to bring the ship around. But Jonah finally convinced them that he was the one that the judgment was for. Maybe Jonah thought that if he were dead, that God would stop punishing the ones around him. So the sailors agreed and threw him into the sea. As soon as Jonah hit the water, the storm broke and everything was calm. Sailors probably had no idea of what had happened next, but they had sense enough to praise Jonah's God and offer sacrifices. When Jonah went into the water, he didn't die by drowning. Instead, he was swallowed by a great fish. Jesus, in Matthew 12:40, called it a sea monster. So apparently, Jesus thought it was a true story, too. It says that he was in the great fish's belly for three days and three nights. And when Jonah woke in the belly of the fish, he had no choice but to cry out to God. As you read through Jonah, you'll see that chapter 2 is Jonah crying out to God. What choice did he have? He was in a fish. He confessed his disobedience. And he told God that he would do whatever God called him. Now, I think this is kind of funny. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. Well, maybe it's just me. But I've been in trouble. I've been in a proverbial belly of a fish before. And I remember the promises and the confessions and the, oh God, you know what happened was, and I'm so sorry, and if you just get me out of this, I will never do it again, and God, please help me, and all of that. I know what Jonah was saying when he was in the belly of that fish, because I've said it before, and perhaps you have too. But God, in his great mercy, heard Jonah's pleas and instructed the fish to vomit him out onto the dry ground, if you want to call that a blessing. After Jonah found himself alive and on dry ground, Jonah ran to the city of Nineveh. And to his amazement, and severe disappointment, the people of Nineveh actually did repent and ask the Lord for salvation. Now, any preacher who would go to a city, if I were to go downtown right now and preach to Washington, D.C., 
and the entire city fell to their knees and repented, I would be humbled, I would be amazed, I would be look at the Lord and the great things he has done for these people. What's interesting is that was not Jonah's response. Jonah was disappointed that God was not going to destroy Nineveh. Jonah became depressed and despondent and asked the Lord to let him die. That was his response to the greatest revival that the world had ever seen. Can you imagine hating a group of people that much? So now, God is like, okay, I'm done with you, Mr. Man. It's time for an object lesson. So, he took his hard-hearted prophet, who was laying there pouting under the hot sun, God, let me die. You should have just let me die. And he allowed a vine to grow, a little bush. He let a bush, a little vine grow to cover Jonah so that the sun wouldn't beam down on his head. Wasn't that sweet? The Lord is merciful and gracious. And he gave him a little vine to rest under and, and refresh himself as he pouted. But, you know, the Lord has a sense of humor. The next thing he did, and this all happened in about a 24-hour span, he bought a little worm. And a little worm came, and a little word ate the vine that Jonah was sitting under. And that did not go well. Jonah was really upset that this worm had eaten his vine. And then, to add insult to injury, the Lord brought this really warm, hot wind across the desert. So now poor baby is hot. He's got a windstorm. He's already mad. And this is just, you know, you can just imagine. He is having a pity party to end all pity parties. And the Lord, since he now had Jonah's attention, showed Jonah the foolishness of the fact that he was more concerned for a plant, that it withered and died. He was more concerned about a plant that had no soul. He was more concerned about a vine that he didn't plant nor water than for the 120,000 people who were destined to perish in Nineveh. Now, here's the interesting part of the book of Jonah. The book closes without any real conclusion. God didn't reveal to us what happened to Jonah. You know how we love a happy ending. The prince gets the princess and all of that. Good guys win, bad guys lose. But that's not what happened. God called Jonah. Jonah ran away. 
God sent a storm. Jonah went to sleep. Sailors throw Jonah overboard. Storm ends. Sailors worship God. God sends a great fish that swallows Jonah. Jonah spends three days, three nights in a great fish bargaining for mercy, and that's just chapter one. Eventually, Jonah goes to Nivea. He preaches an eight-word sermon, 40 days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The whole city repents. Everyone from the king on down to the animals wore sackcloth, which represented remorse and repentance. God relents. Big revival. You would think Jonah would be happy. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh, Lord, this is not what I said when I was still at home. That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Ah. I'm struck by the way the New Living Translation says, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. And as I was studying this, I underlined change of plans, because I believe that's the key to Jonah 4. What change of plans? The fact that God was no longer going to destroy Nivea? You know, there's a little Jonah in all of us, and there's a lot of Jonah in most of us. Jonah's attitude had been quite clear from the beginning. I'm fine, Lord, as long as you destroy my enemies, pull the lever, open the, the trap door, do whatever it is that you do, but send those people back into the hole they crawled in from. That's how Jonah felt. In fact, that God showed great mercy was a great evil to Jonah. the very same man who had experienced God's mercy in the belly of a sea monster is now calling that same loving mercy a great evil. At last we understand why Jonah was so reluctant to go to Nivea in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness who relents from doing harm. You know, that's a reference to Exodus 34, one of the greatest statements in the Old Testament about God's gracious character. Here's the irony of the story, family. Jonah was fine with the mercy he received, but he couldn't handle it when God showed mercy to Nineveh. One writer brought the truth home this way. He said, you can tell when you've made God into your image when it turns out he hates all the same people that you do. 
we may read this book at first and ask, God, what are you going to do about Nineveh? I mean, their people are wicked. They're, they're, they're killers. They're this. They're that. But family, the real question turns out to be, God, what are you going to do about Jonah? God knows how to deal with wicked sinners. He shows them mercy and he saves them. But what's he going to do with smug, arrogant, and anger-filled church people? That's a much bigger problem. When Jonah leaves Nineveh and goes east of the city, he is still hoping against hope that God is going to rain fire and brimstone and destroy the city. But God had other plans. He provided a vine, he provided a worm, and he provided a scorching east wind. You know, how we look at life, the vine was good because it gave Jonah shade, but the worm was bad in Jonah's eyes because it chewed up the vine. And the east wind was very bad in Jonah's eyes because it caused him great discomfort. But family, all these things came from God. The same God who provided the vine also sent the worm and the scorching wind. So the real question boils down to this. Will Jonah only be happy with God when he's on the receiving end of God's grace and mercy? What will he do when God doesn't live up to his expectations? You know, this little drama really does raise a fascinating question in my head that the book doesn't really answer. Did Jonah ever really repent? You know, God is never satisfied with mere outward obedience. He wants us to obey from the heart with gladness, not grudgingly. <laughs> or he'll send a vine, a worm, or a scorching wind to reveal your inner rottenness so your hearts can be transformed. So, since the book ends with a question, that means the final response must come not from the prophet, but from you and from me. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Jonah's story ends with a, not a statement, but a question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? The answer, of course, is yes. God is concerned about that great city, and therefore Jonah should be concerned too. By ending in a question and not a declaration, the book leaves the issue hanging in the air. Will we have a heart? Will we have God's heart for the Ninevehs of our world? Or will we hate them? 
as Jonah hated the city of Nineveh. So let's wrap up this study in Jonah, and I would encourage you to read it this week. But I think that there are three lessons that we can glean from it that will bring the truth home to our hearts and to our situations. The first, I would simply say, is God loves Nineveh. That's the truth of God's mercy. He loves Nineveh. So where's Nineveh today? Well, Nineveh is the city. Nineveh is the country. Nineveh is your neighbor next door. You know, the one who doesn't take care of his yard, the one that you don't like? Who makes too much noise and his kids are like all busted up and getting in trouble all the time? You know, Nineveh is your boss who you quietly think is a jerk. Nineveh is the guy in the next cubicle or the woman down the hall. You know the one that's a drama queen, the one who is always thinking that the world revolves around her? She's your Nineveh. Okay, now I'm going to start meddling. Nineveh is your ex-husband. which is easy to understand. Nineveh is your ex-wife, who you'd rather not see again. Nineveh is your hairdresser, who is on her third, or is it her fourth husband? Who knows? Nineveh is not just a place. Nineveh is a symbol for the gathering together of people around the world. Wherever you find people, there you will find Nineveh in all of its splendor and glory and greed and brutality and evil. It's all there mixed together, the good and the bad, the light with the dark. Look around, family. You live in Nineveh. You work in Nineveh. All your life is lived in and around that great city, and no one can escape it. But the message is still clear. God still loves Nineveh. The second thing that I would say is God is still willing to do whatever it takes to get you to go to Nineveh. For Jonah, that meant spending three days and nights in a fish. What will God have to do to get you to obey? Our churches are filled with modern-day Jonas who've taken holiday cruises to Tarshish. Maybe you're one of them. Maybe God has spoken to you, and you said, you know, I'm okay. That's okay. I don't want to do that. Well, if that's the case, I've got good news and bad news for you. The good news is that you don't need to really worry about the great storm that is coming up on your horizon. But the bad news is you better start worrying about that big fish that's coming in with the storm. There's an old song that the old folks used to sing. 
And in it, it said a line, something like this. He doesn't make you go against your will. He just makes you willing to go. My last point would be that Nineveh needs you. Think about it like this. For all of the cruelty and brutality, Nineveh was ready to turn to God. People didn't know it. They weren't consciously aware of their need. And they certainly weren't intentionally looking for God. But the God who sees all things knew that this vile city was primed and ready to turn to him. If only he could find the right person with the right message who would dare to go there and deliver it. Jonah was God's man for Nineveh. But as I said, the world is full of Nineveh's today. And God is still looking for those who know that he is gracious and merciful and he's slow to anger and abounds in loving kindness. And he's a God who relents from doing harm. And if you know that, and you're willing, he wants us to extend that compassion and that mercy to the places where only you can go, to that person that only you can reach, that opportunity only you can fulfill. Nineveh was ready to turn to God. Are you ready to be a part of that plan? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples of the men and women of the scriptures because in them we can see ourselves. Our hearts and our lives are laid bare. If we're honest, Father, in these moments, we do have a little bit of Jonah in us. There are people that we would rather not extend your mercy to. Father, there are people we just don't even care about, much less extend your mercy to. But as we come here every Sunday morning, Father, and we sing all of these songs about your grace flowing down, and it's not to us, but to you is the glory, and break our hearts. You've been so good to us, so much better than we've been to ourselves. 
Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your loving kindness. And Father, teach us to extend that mercy. We say this in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen.